the first show that I vividly remember seeing growing up in Baltimore, The Wiz. The first musical I ever saw was uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Stephen Schwartz had a musical called The Magic Show starring Doug Henning. Um, and that was my first Broadway musical in 1974. The first musical I probably saw, I guess, on TV was probably also Wizard of Oz. And um, we had a black and white TV and my parents would never get us a color TV. So I remember years later, someone being like, you know how in the Wizard of Oz, it goes from black and white to color when she leaves Kansas? And I was just like, what? The first musical I remember ever seeing, I saw in eighth grade. And they bust us up to the high school to see the production of Music Man. And I sat there with people singing and people dancing. And I thought, this is so amazing. This is such an amazing world to be in. And it's amazing that this is in the world. The truth must be told. The truth must be told. I have to be bold. The truth must be told. The truth must be told. Hi, I'm Eric B. Anthony. Hi, I'm Ava Bergman. Hi. Julian Esberg. Hi, I'm Eddie Shapiro. Hi, I'm Wendy Worthington. And you're entering a world gone good. A world gone good. A world gone good. I'm in control. Well, hello and welcome. My name's Steve, and this is World Gone Good with a musical flair. But before we raise the curtain on our brand new episode, this is just a friendly reminder that you can help us spread the good by subscribing, rating, and or reviewing our show, this one right here on whatever pod platform right there where you are currently listening. And yes, you are welcome to share us with your friends on your social medias or however you talk to your friends. (laughs) We don't judge, but we do appreciate you and your support. Okay, so when I was about nine years old, my dad took me on a Saturday morning into New York City to see my very first ever Broadway show. Any guesses as to what it was? I'll give you a little hint. Um, It involved a lost boy looking for his shadow. Did you get it? Yeah, you did. It was Peter Pan, and it was magic. We had seats in the front row of the balcony, the very front. I love that seat. (laughs) And when Sandy Duncan flew out across the audience and came up toward the balcony singing and smiling right at me, I was hooked. Today I'm talking with five musically influenced people. Eddie Shapiro, Ava Bergman, Wendy Worthington, Eric B. Anthony, and Julian Nitzberg. In one way or another, each of them has a good story to tell about musicals and how they've affected their lives. So dim the lights and get ready because the show is about to begin. What is good about a musical? Wow. Oh my God. What's good about, what's not good about a musical? (sighs) What's good about a musical? Well, what's good about a musical when you're in one is when there's nothing left to say, you get to sing it. I think that's pretty cool, especially for like for a person like me who actually in real life, like (laughs) will catch myself singing random thoughts um, I love being able to express myself through song. So I think it's pretty cool that the reason people sing in a musical is because they just didn't have anything else left to say. I know that there are people, my brother Jeff is one of them, 
who think musicals are weird. They, they say people don't burst into song spontaneously. And I say, well, you don't live in my world then. Um, but, <laughs> but um, I think they are quite wonderful in the way that they heighten uh, the way that you can look at the world. Um, generally people don't burst into musical numbers and start dancing most of the time. Um, but wouldn't it be wonderful if they could? What's great about musical is you could just write subtext um, when you're writing a song, you know, you just, the, and if you wrote a script and someone just was like, I love you, uh, you know, um, I love you. I love you. Every moment I love you. You'd be like, okay, this person's really cheesy. But if they sing it, you're just like, Oh, okay. They tell such wonderful stories. They provide uh, multiple different points of view that you would never consider about the world. And just the magic of seeing it live. It's such an intimate space and such a different and cool way of telling a story. And I never fail to get wrapped into like a show whenever I go out and see it. I love it. Musicals are transformative. They pull you into a whole other world where people sing and dance and move and have energy. And they're bright and colorful unless they're a Vita. And you can carry them with you all the time because you can sing musicals in your car and in your shower and in the supermarket. Um, and um, they're my favorite way to pick up people in bars. How's that? We start with Eddie Shapiro. He's a journalist and an author. But more importantly, he's a lifelong fan of musical theater. Now, you are a theater journalist. Is that what you would call yourself? I'd call myself a... I started to curse. Is cursing appropriate on this? Please. I, I, uh, I call myself a fucking theater nerd. Um, <laughs> but, um, but in professional parlance, yes, I'm a theater journalist. Um, and that's because I first started writing about theater. Um, I was a critic and then a features writer for different magazines and different, um, uh, um, uh, newspapers. And then, came uh, the books. Um, but so, but yeah, so there's a long history before the books of writing about the theater um, before I was writing about it in, in print. What did you go to college for? Acting at NYU at Tisch School of the Arts. Oh, wow. Okay, great. Yeah, and I did, grew up in New York City. Yeah. Now, did you do any Broadway yourself? I did off-Broadway um, and I toured, um, but I did not do any Broadway musicals. I didn't leave acting because I wasn't getting work or because I found it heartbreaking or anything like that. I, I made a life choice, which I'm not at all um, sorry about. And at the same time, I have my moments, like everybody who sort of grew up fantasizing about it, about like, mm, I want to perform again, but then they're over. And I just dance around my living room. <laughs> it's a lot less pressure. That says you. You don't know what kind of pressure I put on myself in my living room. You moved on, uh, not moved on, but you, as you've just noted, you went on to write a book called Nothing Like a Dame Conversations with the Great Women of Musical Theater in 2015. You wrote this book and you spoke to people, oh my God, you spoke to Elaine Stritch, Audra McDonald, Donna McKechnie, Adina Menzel, and the list goes on and on. Talk to us about this book and tell us where did the idea first come from to write this book? Other than your passion for it, what was the spark that made you say, I'm going to hone in on these, how many women is it that you interviewed? 20. 20. It's 20 Tony winning women. Um, they all have Tonys and they're, they're, you know, the oldest of them was, I think, 
yeah, it was Elaine Strish and Carol Channing were the old eldest, and then the youngest were Sutton Foster and Laura Benanti. Um, and um, uh, the idea came from actually Barbara Cook. Um, Barbara Cook, who, again, if your listeners don't know, was a during the golden age of musical theater, she was uh, considered one of the great ingenues. She was the original Marion, the librarian and the music man and starred in the original productions of she loves me and candide. Um, and then um, in her later years, she became a cabaret performer um, and, and was performing um, in smaller venues. And then that blew up and she's suddenly performing at Carnegie hall and, and, and Lincoln center and um, was quite famous as a, as a song interpreter, but in her shows, and I was obsessed with Barbara Cook throughout her, her cabaret career. And in her shows, she would always talk about the golden age of musical theater and sort of being in rehearsal rooms with people like Rogers and Hammerstein and Leonard Bernstein and, and Julie Stein and, and um, uh, the experience of, of, of being in the room creating with these people. And I was fascinated by her stories and never could get enough of them. And I really think it would be great to capture these stories. So I wrote her a very impassioned, probably gushing, probably (laughs) overly extravagant letter um, that said, you know, I think your, 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 your legacy is so valuable. Um, Would you like to collaborate on your autobiography? And she wrote back a quite lovely, no, (laughs) But that got me thinking about it. And I thought, well, why stop at Barbara Cook? You know, there are lots of people who have these stories to tell. Um, So I wrote to her again and I said, well, what if this book wasn't your autobiography? What if it was you were a chapter? And to that, she said, yes. Um, So then I was off to the races. And so that was part of the reason. And then the other reason is I learned – a few years ago, uh, and by a few, I mean more than a few, but um, that for me, I had left a job that I'd been doing for, for a long time. And I, I, I found myself thinking, okay, so what do I want to do with my time? And I started to think about what do I love and what are the things I'm good at and how do I put those things together to fill my time? Because I'm in love with musical theater and because I know that I can write, um, it was sort of like, okay, so let's do that. If I'm going to immerse myself in something, let me immerse myself in something that I'm going to wake up every day excited to do. If you follow the fun and something's fun, everything else flows with it. I've always find that when you when you chase a, a title, when you chase a an amount of money, a salary, when you even try to chase somebody who's not interested in you romantically, <laughs> whatever it may be, and it's not fun, it doesn't feel fun, but you're you're fighting, you know, to try to make it. It's it's not there. It's when you follow the fun, right? How did you score these interviews with strangers? Tenacity, truly tenacity. Um, in some cases, uh, it's, it, it helps that I had, as I mentioned, already um, done a lot of writing about theater. So some of them I had already talked to and known. It was easy for me to get to Kristen Chenoweth. It was easy for me to get to Cheetah Rivera um, uh, because I had already interviewed them. Um, um, so there were some that were already on that list. And I, I started by asking up front, um, if I do this book, would you, would you do it? And getting their confirmation so that then when I'm asking strangers, I could go to Angela Lansbury and say, these are the people who are already in it. Will you be part of it? And in some 
in some cases, it took a real courtship. I mean, I asked Patty Lapone seven times before she said yes. Um, but, you know, tenacity. Was there a moment interviewing somebody where something was told information-wise to you where you're like, fuck yes, this is that moment. This is the thing that I need for my – the first thing that I need for my novel. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, there were tons of those. Every time I would walk into one of these interviews, I would do a tremendous amount of research before I walked in the door. And the reason I was doing the research was not to understand what these people had done in their careers, because I already knew what they had done in their careers. What I was interested in was what they had already told the press. I would listen to interviews. I would listen to, I would watch TV appearances. I would go to old clippings because I wasn't interested in repeating stories that were told again and again and again. I get asked all the time the question, how did you get these people to open up to you like that? And I don't have an answer to that. I can only say that I'm lucky enough that they did. Elaine Stritch said to me, she was completely irascible, as you might expect, um, and, and just very, very, very difficult um, and would say things to me like, Eddie, what the fuck kind of question is that? That was 50 years ago. How the fuck am I supposed to remember? And <laughs> I would say things like, well, perhaps knowing yourself as you do, you might conjecture about what you might have felt at the time. You know, <laughs> it's sort of like, like, like you know, um, and at, she finally said to me at one point, you know, I get so bored talking about the past and this is all the past. And I said, you're one woman show notwithstanding. And that gave her pause. She literally like sat up in her chair when I said that. So I think there was a moment of kind of respect earning there. But then after we had done the interview, and this doesn't appear in the book because it would have been a little too self-aggrandizing, but I will share it with you. Um, she, she would call me afterwards and tell me stories. And she said to me at one point, and I'm so glad I have this on tape um, for, you know, for my grandchildren who will never exist. She said, Eddie, I, I get so bored talking about the past all the time. So bored. But when I think of a story, I get excited to tell you because you have such a genuine passion for this stuff that, that I just get excited to tell you. And I thought, is that what it is? Is that why they're opening up to me? Because they see that I'm not here to get a scoop, that I'm just here to delight in what they have to share. Eddie's brand new book, A Wonderful Guy, Conversations with the Great Men of Musical Theater, the follow-up to his first one, is now out. Pick up your copy wherever you grab your favorite book. Now we turn to a younger, sorry, Eddie, and myself, no offense, man, perspective. Ava Bergman stepped on stage at the ripe old age of just nine years old. Here's what Ava loves about musicals. You started performing in musicals. What was the first musical you performed in? The first musical is once again, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It all yeah. came full, full circle. Yes, it did. Yeah, it happened when I was nine. My mom saw it. It was just like a local theater company. And she was saying, do you want to try this? Do you want to audition? And I was ecstatic. I was like, of course I want to audition. And the day that I was there, um, I was sitting with a bunch of kids who've done theater before. This was for the uh, kids chorus, what I was trying out for. And when I went into that room, I didn't have like a musical song prepared. I sang um, I'll Be There by the Jackson 5. And I'm just like singing for the director and decided to give it a shot. And I was just so happy to be able to get cast in that show and experience uh, performing for the first time. Like 
the fact that they gave it to me because I was just so eager to try musicals and performing in musicals was such a wonderful opportunity. And I was so thankful for them to give me the chance to do it. And you went on and you've performed in how many musicals? I believe it was about 14 musicals. Wow. And how old are you now? I am 20. Just okay. turned well, That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Between 9 and 20. Okay. So let's start going through. How? What's your favorite musical that you performed in? My favorite musical was uh, my senior year show. It was a black box musical. And I was in the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. I love that show. Oh my gosh, I love that show. It's so good. And who did you play? I played Olive Ostrovsky. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have a sad song in that uh, to your parents. Oh because my they, gosh, yeah. Because they weren't very good parents, if I remember right. Yeah, um, the dad, she lives with her dad, who isn't too nice to her, and her mom, like, she doesn't really know where her mom is. She likes to believe right now that she's, like, saving lives in Israel, I believe. And yeah, that's the song, actually, the I Love You song that got me interested in the show. And when I heard it, I'm like, oh, one of these days, like, if I get a chance to sing, like, either as the mom or as Olive, like, I would give anything to sing in that song. And the fact that I was able to do that was so incredible. I know your parents very well, and I know you are very close with your parents. You have great parents. I'm buttering your parents up so that they'll put me in their will. No. I. Where did you draw from to play this, for lack of a better word, lost person? Well, I... I'm like you said, like just so lucky to have such wonderful parents. And um, when I was performing at first in rehearsals, like I was able to sing it, but I wasn't able to connect to that until I realized um, the night before the first performance, actually, sorry, it was the night of the first performance. My mom gave me a little present, my mom and my dad, and it was so sweet. It was a picture of me when I was in Annie. It was after the show and I took a picture with me and my parents and my mom wrote in the frame a line from the show and she says, we always knew you were a winner. And that was like, it just really like made me realize for a character like Olive to not have that support from her parents and like that longing and um, just that imagination to have something that isn't there. It was just so heartbreaking. And yeah, that was the first time that I like was able to like cry during a performance. Like I had a little, I was a little bit teary. I'd got to be honest. Cause it's just so sad to not have that in someone's life. Have you, you've been to Broadway? I have twice. Um, I got to go um, with Tina, my aunt Tina, um, when I was in seventh grade and I saw my first Broadway show with uh, Matthew Broderick. It was nice work if you can get it. And mm-hmm. then I went um, back when I was a sophomore, I believe, with my whole family. And we all saw Matilda, the musical, which was so amazing. Like, I did not know what to expect, but I thought it was such a wonderful show. Do you see a future for yourself just in musicals on Broadway? Is that a dream or? Uh, It was a dream of mine for a very long time, like to perform on Broadway. But um, over the years, like I've been trying and trying, but I am not a good dancer. Like I think I could sing well and act fine. But like, yeah, dancing is not a strong suit of mine at all. But um, I definitely want to like pursue like a entertainment like content, like whether it be like television shows or movies that are like 
in the musical genre, like shows like uh, Glee or any movie musicals, like I would love to be part of that somehow. Do you have a musical icon that's somebody that you look up to? I have too many musical icons. There's so many people for many different reasons. Um, well, I really like started to have an icon when like Hamilton came out, of course, with like Lin-Manuel Miranda, the way that he was able to tackle so many different elements of the show. But there's so many like actors and actresses that I love. I love uh, Stephanie J. Block, who was in Falsettos, um, Andrew Rannells, who was in Falsettos and a lot of other shows I love. He was in The Prom recently, and I thought he did such an amazing job. Um, I also love uh, Jonathan Groff. Uh, I also love Indina Menzel. There's, yeah, just so many people and like their unique ways of telling a story. They're just, yeah, I look up to them all so much for many unique reasons. Now, there's been a lot of movies through the years that, you know, were Broadway started musicals that went to film. When you see something like The Sound of Music or The King and I or any of the South Pacific, the old school musicals, do those resonate with you as a younger person or are they corny? Oh, no, they definitely resonate with me, especially when you see like little things like in shows that they kind of make a parody of like the older musicals, whether it be like a line in a musical that plays like a, that's like a little reference for like the sound of music and stuff. Like, I think it's very inspiring to see like the shows that kind of inspired other shows. Like I loved watching the sound of music growing up. And um, I also loved, I was in, when I was in middle school, we did the music man and I loved hearing the songs and seeing all the different adaptations that came like the TV movie and like other films. I just love those um, musicals. Like I think they're special in their own way. I think I'm more into like contemporary musicals, but I definitely love them. How would you sell a musical to somebody who's never seen one? What would what would be the way you would tell them that you have to go see this? Well, um, I would tell them that I think it's such a wonderful like experience and like it's really important to pick the right show that's for you. What's so special about musicals is that although, you know, it's like a genre, it it really branches out to different kinds of shows. There's rock musicals, there's classics, there's contemporary, there's more pop. But I think like whichever one you choose, it's going to take you on a different journey with a different perspective that you wouldn't think about like in the world or a different way of seeing society or even just like hearing some of your favorite songs put to music like Mamma Mia or a musical like that. Uh, I think like each different show is very special. And if you want to try a musical for the first time, like kind of see what stories they tell or what genre of music they are and see what interests you. Because like, if you might not like a certain musical, there's a whole other musical that's totally different from that one. And I just say like, give it a try because once you really get into musicals, it's such a wonderful experience just to listen to them from performing, from listening to just seeing it live on stage. Each show gives you a different experience. If we're looking for a good experience, look no further than my good friend, Wendy Worthington. We were in the same theater company back in the 90s, and just a few years ago, she got the opportunity to audition for Madame Morrible in the touring company of Wicked. And spoiler alert, she got the part. This is her good story. 
my agents called and they said, we have an audition for you for Wicked. And I thought, you know, I'm going to... I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to give it all my all cuz I love Wicked. I think it's a wonderful show. I had seen it 5 times. And uh, Madame Morrible doesn't have to sing at all if she doesn't want to. That can be totally talk sung. She doesn't have her own song. She has pieces of a couple of songs, but she doesn't have any big thing. She doesn't have any big songs. She doesn't have any dancing. Um so I can handle this. <laughs> It was a little daunting, but it wasn't so bad because um, it wasn't really dependent on my singing ability. It was more dependent on my acting ability. And so I had confidence in that. And then I didn't hear anything. And I got a call from my agent and he said, okay, we're all here in the, uh, in the, in the office because we all wanted to talk to you. And I thought, oh, they're going to tell me I didn't get it. And they told me I did get it. And I had five weeks to close down my life here in Los Angeles, find somebody to live in my house and take care of my cats and pay me to do that um, and uh, and figure out what I was going to need on tour, never having toured ever in my life and uh, started asking everybody I knew who had ever, ever toured, what's your advice? And the, actually the first person I got advice from, he said, hey, I, have, I have three pieces of, of advice for you. The first one is live on your per diem and sock everything else away. The second one is buy an umbrella. Trust me. <laughs> and the third one is don't sleep with the chorus boys. And I kind of thought that might have been his own rule. <laughs> <laughs> but I had no idea what I was in for. I rehearsed in Portland, Oregon. And then I opened in Tempe, Arizona. And I played 21 cities. Um, wow. In uh, 15 months. I performed before about 1.3 million people. Um, I did 509 performances. City to city, obviously, stage stages must change. So each, sta- each stage, the stage itself had to be a certain size in order to accommodate the set. And everything on stage was always the same. But the moment you stepped backstage, it was always different. So sometimes um, I would have a changing booth off stage, and sometimes there was room, uh, not enough room for that and time enough for me to get back to my dressing room to make changes. Um, in Wichita, I stepped off stage after the first performance and I couldn't find my dressing room. <laughs> I couldn't find my way back because it was a, it was a weird pie shaped theater. And I walked off a door into a, a section of, that, of backstage I'd never been in before. <laughs> and I couldn't find it. It was, I felt like that scene in, in, um, in Spinal Tap, where they're lost underneath the city. I'm like, please, somebody show me where my dressing room is, because i got to be back on stage in five minutes. We would do eight shows a week. We would have Mondays off. And we would usually finish on a Sunday night performance. And as we were finishing with pieces, they would be loading them into trucks. And there would always be, have to be somebody there going, no, don't, don't load that yet. We still haven't used it. <laughs> and then the trucks would, um, would drive to the next space that we were, which was u- usually an overnight trip, trip, but sometimes it would take a little longer. Um, and then we would travel on Mondays. Then we would have Tuesday off 
while they were still getting the theater ready. And then Wednesday afternoon, we would report to the theater. We would have a, uh, a company meeting and then do a sound check. And then we would um, do the show that night. And we would do two shows on Thursday to make up for the not doing a show that week on a Tuesday night. So we would still be doing eight shows. This is a costume, hair, and makeup heavy show. And it's beautiful. What was your time in the makeup chair? Uh, well... First of all, um, they designed, um, they, they did a makeup design specifically for me, for my face, based on um, the fact that, for instance, I have little squinty eyes in a theater that's um, two or three or 4,000 seats. They wouldn't be able to see my eyes. So they, they, did, they did a couple of attempts, and then they eventually brought the, co- the makeup person joined us on on tour and designed a makeup specifically for my face that was based actually on drag queen makeup. <laughs> so I actually, had, I actually had two sets of eyebrows. I had my own eyebrows that were um, a little bit um, softened out and then fake eyebrows drawn above that so that the whole area between my eyebrow and my uh, the end of my eyelid became the eyelid. Yes, you um, had a lift. Yes. <laughs> you had a cheap but, lift. <laughs> <laughs> but once they taught me the makeup, I had to do it myself. Right. So I was, I was not in a makeup chair. Um, the only person, the, there were only two people in the show who actually had somebody else doing their makeup. One, of course, is, is Elphaba because she's, she's got so much green. And the other one is um, when Bach makes the change to the Tin Man. Yeah. And because he's got so much silver, they neither of them could do that themselves. But everybody else just does their own makeup. How do you sustain eight shows a week? I was afraid that that would get to be a problem. But first of all, we had someone who would come in periodically and refresh the show. I mean, the quality control on this on, on Wicked is amazing, which is why it's continued as long as it's continued. And our production stage manager was, was a brilliant person to rehearse you into the show and to keep you honest. And then occasionally the creatives would come and you would get a real brush up. Then before Stephen Schwartz and Winnie Holtzman came to see the show, I got a list of, I think there were five things on it of dialogue where I was taking a little bit too much liberty. One where I had forgotten to say, oh, at the beginning of a a sentence. And one where I had put in a slightly different word, I think. But it was that detailed. So you you had people who were watching to make sure that it was always on track. But then, of course, they wanted you also to make it your own. So there were some things that I did that other marbles didn't do, or I did them a certain way and other marbles didn't. And I was afraid going into it that it would get to be the point, you know, 509 times where you just get, oh, God, do I have to go on with that? And honestly, the only thing that I got tired of was was the prep, because I had to be there at least an hour and a half before curtain in order to be ready, because there's so much that I had to do before that, and I never liked being rushed. But as far as performing goes, I was always able to find something new, some new aspect of something, some slightly different way of saying a particular line, some slightly different relationship to who I was on stage with, because although it was many times it was the same people, the ensemble would change, or I would have, you know, some, suddenly I would have an understudy, or there would be somebody, somebody was always, it was somebody on stage always that was, that I had never been on stage with before, um, or somebody backstage that I'd never worked with before. 
or I had a different dresser or, you know, so there was always something new. If you had to single out one moment of 509 shows that stays in your head, what's that moment? Oh, Lord, there were so many. I mean, it was always fun when something went wrong, but those are just little things. I mean, the only thing that was a little odd was because we were miked and in these enormous spaces, the mic would be under my wig and it would be um, right positioned right at the the top of my forehead. And then the cord cord would run down my back and I had a, 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 a pocket in my corset for the mic pack to sit. And there were two times when something went wrong with the mic and I was not double mic'd. The wizard was double mic'd. Alphaba was double mic'd. I think Glinda must have been. But I think everybody else had just a single mic. So there was some, one time something went wrong with the mic and they had to change it out. And I, I realized later, I, this was very early in the run. I'd only been doing it for like two weeks and they needed to change it out. And I realized later that the, the point they had picked was the one, t- the, the shortest amount of time I had um, to be off stage. And I had to like take off the whole jacket and undo the skirt and uh, get the wig off and then get the wig back on and, and all this stuff. And uh, barely made, I made it back on clutching my, my dress because I didn't have time to refasten it. And I'm holding it up at that point. I'm holding an umbrella and uh, uh, the invitation from the wizard to give to Alphaba. So I didn't have any free hands to hold my dress closed. <laughs> so that was a load of fun. And that was terrifying because all I could think of was please don't flash the audience. <laughs> but yeah, there were just so many moments. I, I mean, it was, it was an incredible experience. Julian Nitzberg is the creator of. For the Love of a Glove, an unauthorized musical fable about the life of Michael Jackson as told by his glove. That's the title. I didn't make it up. And Eric B. Anthony plays the man in the mirror himself, Michael Jackson. You heard a taste of it at the very top of this episode. It's time to dive in deeper. Let's get our glove on. Crossing over is our goal. What we do is mainstream pop And it's taking us straight to the tippy top Ooh, the world to us is fine We don't put our hypocrisy Plain on wine That's the way we sneak across the color line That's the way we sneak across the color What sparked this and or maybe an easier question is who hurt you? <laughs> Why don't you just give me that person's name? <laughs> um, so many people hurt me. It's hard to say one. Oh, Julian. A major network asked me to write a Michael Jackson biopic. And I just said there's too many unknowns about Michael that you can't answer in a straight drama. I was like, you have to address the racism that he experienced. You have to address the accusations of, you know, pedophilia. You have to deal with his religion. You have to deal with so many things. It wouldn't work in a drama because no one really knows what went on inside Michael's head and all these bizarre things. Why 
would he suddenly announce that he's going to buy the elephant man's bones, you know? Right. And a big part of his life was he was raised Jehovah's Witness. And this is such a crazy fundamentalist religion. It's incredibly homophobic. They teach my favorite teaching, which is um, masturbation will turn you gay because (laughs) when you masturbate, you're putting, if you're a man, you're putting a man's hand on your penis and you start to get used to a man's hand on it and you will want other men's hand hands on it and you will eventually turn gay. And, um, and when I was trying to reconcile that, I was like, okay, how did this man get raised in this religion? And then suddenly be on stage grabbing his crotch in public all the time. Um, and I realized he wasn't the one doing it. It was his glove who he could not control, who was grabbing his crotch, which led me to the realization that these five aliens who look like gloves came to Earth. It turns out that they feed on human blood, but can also give anyone the most incredible talent to dance and sing. And these five gloves happened to land in Gary, Indiana, where the Jackson Five um, met the aliens, put them on, got this incredible talent. But it was kind of a deal with the devil, as we see in our musical. Again, there's a lot to peel back about your psyche. (laughs) You've written songs for it uh, that include What Is It About Indiana, which is a Ku Klux Klan song, Uh, Don't Masturbate, which I think his mother sings to him. Yep, Catherine. And What a Delight When You Become White. Now, there is a line, but the magic of a musical is we we sort of allow ourselves to step past that line, right? Did that play into things when you were writing stuff? Did you try to push yourself over the line? Or did you just find yourself there? I'm never behind the line. I'm always over the line and sometimes too far and have to make sure I don't go too, too far because <laughs> sometimes people don't get what I'm trying to get. So on this one, I you know, tried to make sure that everyone could understand the political critiques we're making because the show deals a lot with politics and um, and the history of American racism. I happened to live in Kentucky at one point when I was younger, and right over the Ohio River from Kentucky is Indiana. And I knew Indiana had fought with the North in the Civil War, and then people started telling me Indiana had the largest Ku Klux Klan in U.S. history. And, you know, when you're raised in America, you know, you th- we've created this image that racism is largely the South and the North fought against it in the civil war. And then it was gone in the North and it unfortunately still exists in the South, but everywhere else it's pretty much been fixed and stuff. And um, that's kind of the myth we've been told. And then just to be like, wait, a state in the North had the largest Ku Klux Klan in U S history. I thought the Ku Klux Klan was the South. And then of course it turns out there's Ku Klux Klan in New York. And so that kind of gave me a different perspective on, where Michael was raised. And so you could put it in a play uh, where like someone just says, well, you know, uh, Indiana does have the, did have the largest Ku Klux Klan in the U S history. And it would disappear quickly as like a historical fact, but to really create the momentousness of how horrifying that is, we put a song in the show. (laughs) um, And, and then, you know, because I also love, a Mel Brooks sense of humor. Right. I feel like we made it with all these Ku Klux Klan members coming out singing it very happily, not realizing how horrifying it is. Well, we had the largest Ku Klux Klan in U.S. history. 
One third of our white citizens didn't belong. Yes, we had the largest Ku Klux Klan in U.S. history. So let's celebrate that with this funky song. Yeah. You don't want to lecture the audience. The best way to like make them embarrassed if they have awful political views is to have everyone laughing at them. So if everyone's laughing at that, at how horrifying they they are, the people who are agreeing with my politics aren't going to feel lectured at, and the people who are, you know, on the other side are going to feel kind of embarrassed. So, um, and so that's a good way for us to talk about American racism in song. So there's puppetry in this show too. I was always a giant fan of puppetry. I grew up with my own puppet theater and playing a lot with puppets. And um, and Betsy Zyko, who's our amazing producer, is also a puppeteer. So uh, yeah, so I started, you know, saying I need puppeteers, and Betsy introduced me to every puppeteer in LA, and we ended up going with Robin Walsh as our lead puppet designer. We've got so many different styles of puppetry. I mean, Eric is working a life-size 10-year-old Michael Jackson puppet. What was that like, Eric? A rewarding challenge. Um, because I, I know, truly, I love puppetry. And Robin and, and Ron were such incredible, um, incredible teachers when it came to showing us what to do to bring the puppets to life. Um, I did get an opportunity to do some puppetry in Lion King, but I, I did not have the fortune of working with any of the life-size puppets um, on a continuous basis in that show. So the opportunity to actually breathe life into a puppet for the amount of time that I did and have to take all of the, the nuances in consideration with like where the puppet looks, making sure the puppet is alive, even when it's not speaking, all of that stuff. It was such a rewarding challenge when we finally got to the place in performance where it didn't feel like, oh, I'm using a puppet, but it became an extension of myself and I became an extension of the puppet. I thought that was pretty cool. So Eric, let me ask you this. How did you find, how did you lock into, how did you create your own Michael Jackson? And did you do it um, in a way to honor him or play the humor toward it? Like, how did you embrace Michael? Oh my God, that just came out so wrong. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> when Julian t- offered it to me and said, you know, you're going to be Michael. I was, I said to Julian, I said, and it's important for me to say this to you, Julian, I'm not a Michael Jackson impersonator. I'm an actor. And so I need to make sure that you don't want somebody who is a Michael Jackson impersonator. Cause that's not what I do. What I'm willing and able to do is take the story that you've written and see what is the heart of that story and find the truth for that person. And so that's what I did. I, I, first of all, just really, really think what Julian investigates in the show with the material was enough to just give me compassion and empathy for Michael, right? So then there was already an investment in what was happening to him in the story. And then there's Michael Jackson, who we all know, and the the areas that we don't, where there's like clips of him in recordings, maybe that somebody 
illegally got, but you can find those things. So just doing the kind of work to to find who was he, who was he really, you know, and and get past the um, the persona that we all know and some love and some don't love. It was for me humanizing the 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 giant of a man entertainer image iconic person that he was i just wanted to find the truth of what is his heart what what was his what were his dreams what was it like for him once he was inside of his dreams like what does that feel like for the for the person and so that's what i kept digging into was just like and i would say that to julian a lot like i you know i know this show is like aliens and it's shenanigans and it's filthy and it's all of these things but it's also about this person who wanted love and wanted to be seen and that was that was what i focused on what a delight what a sight a delight a sight incredibly right the mark of cain to me and no longer dark as the dead of night what a delight what a sight when i become Isn't God great? Now, you guys obviously did something right because you got three Ovation nominations, including nominations for each of you and for costuming. So that's pretty damn good for a show that was only up for a couple of weeks before a major pandemic hit. <laughs> yeah, that was that 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 was um, that was for me. I was I'll say that was a big surprise in the midst of being in the pandemic, but also just a, a real great reminder that there's really wonderful things happening in Los Angeles theater. And we were a part of that. And I was, I love that. I love that the um, stage Alliance came and saw our show and recognized the contribution that we made to uh, LA theater during that season. Julian, what do you want people to walk away from this show thinking and feeling? What change do you want to put in people's hearts? I mean, I think it's, important for people, you know, I, I, you know, I wrote this over 10 years ago and took so many years to like find the right composers, the right music. It's kind of funny because what I was addressing 10 years ago, people didn't want to talk about very much. And now people are finally talking about it a lot more um, because we're really getting deep into American racism through many songs. And um, uh, so I think, you know, we wanted, you know, I'm really excited that we're part of that conversation. I want people to also like rethink Michael's life. I think people have simplified his life too much um, and not, you know, really gotten how complicated his life had to be. And, you know, whether you're a fan or someone who's turned against him, you know, we, we found that everyone likes our show. The, the people who are upset with Michael come out and feeling like, they've been able to process what they felt before and appreciate Michael again. Cancel culture has become such a big thing in the last few years. And I'm in favor of something called process culture. You try and process why lots of people and lots of artists do bad things. And we've kind of simplified life so much that we can't understand that there are many musicians and artists and painters and etc. who are multifaceted. They've done 
eight good things and two bad things. Wagner, Beethoven, James Brown, you know, each of each of them did monumental things for music and then like had personal lives that were a fucking mess. And I think we invest so much in our celebrities and our artists that we expect them to be secular saints instead of just saying like, okay, a lot of the best art comes from really tormented people. Sure, sure. And um, and they make very amazing art, but their lives were very tormented. And that's why they didn't just choose a day job that made their life easy. The world to me is fine. I don't point out hypocrisy, complain or whine as I sneak. As he sneaks. No, I won't. No, he walks. Chest out. Chest out. Which I is Very proud. As I cross the motherfucking color line. Two questions to end. It can go back to anything we've already talked about, or it can be anything that comes into your head. Question number one. Who inspires you? Uh, God inspires me. God, the idea of the universe and the great creator and the great lover of us all inspires me. Honestly, my whole family inspires me for different ways, especially right now with everything that we're experiencing. My brother is doing a Zoom musical. My other brother started college. My dad's going to work and finding time to go there safely. And my aunt is working all the time from home. But I got to say that my mom, with everything that she's gone through this during this time, she really inspires me. She balances work and their in my family who lives on the East Coast, she calls all the time to check in on them and going through the own pandemic scares and comforting us. And she doesn't get enough credit for all the support that she gives us during this time and all the love that she gives us and for her to balance all the important things in her life. It's very, very special. I, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to narrow the top, narrow the field because there's so many ways I can go with this, but just in terms of, um, uh, this, I'm going to stick with the subjects of my books. Um, people like Raul Esparza and Audra McDonald, um, who are so committed to the craft, um, but also so grounded as humans, um, and so in touch with their own insecurities. Um, I find that really, really inspiring because it's very, it's, it's, um, it's success, but it's also always striving for growth and always staying in touch with their own quite real humanity. You know, there's no artifice, there's no, um, there's, they're, they're just them always striving and that always inspires me. Oh Lord, lots of people. Uh, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm nowhere near as versatile as she is, but I'm, it was just seeing some of the stuff that Queen Latifah has been doing and realizing how absolutely versatile she's been. Um, I have gotten to know Brian Cranston a little bit and he's quite wonderful. I've done a few little tiny things with Tom Hanks and I, I just love his humanity and his sense of humor. Most of the best actors are also the nicest people 
And it's partly because they, they've gotten beyond the point where they have anything to prove. And I think that's a good lesson. I, you know, it changes every week. I'm a giant Curtis Mayfield fan. I'm always inspired by Curtis Mayfield. But then I discovered um, a whole school of um, like early 70s, late 60s, early 70s reggae. That was all people who Curtis Mayfield produced and then was inspired by. So, um, so, you know, every week it's completely someone new. Final question. Again, whatever you want to say, tell me something good. Okay, something good. Kamala Harris is the vice president of America. I think that's pretty dope. And talking about our beloved show was pretty good. I think it's so easy right now during this time to see all the things that are taken away from us or being put on pause. But I believe that so many people are doing wonderful things to adapt to this changing time. Like my school, we figure out how to communicate on Zoom. I have um, a friend group that we come up with our own virtual short films that we do on Zoom. And yeah, my brothers and I still being able to hang out and make videos and just the fact that my family is finding ways to find like a spending time together and it's just finding ways to adapt to like a very uncertain time. And I think it's very possible and we're doing wonderful things. I know this podcast is about good things. And I think the best thing is uh, humans are going to slowly be going extinct and then uh, the natural world will return. So that's what I really think is good because I think the last year has proven that humans are too stupid to, uh, function on earth anymore. Tell you something good. I got my first vaccine. I just feel like there's finally light at the end of, of, of a very long, dark tunnel. And I think that a lot of the stuff that we've been through in the course of COVID and, um, and politics and so forth has, um, it's made it a lot more difficult in some ways, but it's also made us all a little more aware of um, the things that need to be fixed and maybe how we can fix them. Um, and there's some hope. This is delightful. This, this right now is in the middle of a pandemic and here we are, um, connecting and, um, and enjoying, um, and, 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 uh, that's, that's good. Uh, you know what? I'm going to quote, I asked Cheetah Rivera, I said to her at one point, you're known as a dancer and you are now getting up there in years and, 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 and what people have in their mind about you is not the same thing that you deliver when you get up on stage. How do you, how do you deal with that? Um, and she said, look, I could spend a lot of time focused on the things that I can't do anymore, or I could spend time focused on the things that I can. And there are a lot of things that I can do. Um, and that's what drives me. And I feel not only is that, um, a great life lesson. It feels particularly relevant in the middle of a pandemic, um, which is like, okay, yeah, there's lots that we can't do, but what are the things that we can? And I feel grateful for the things that we can. And that includes this moment. Thank you, Eddie, Ava, Wendy, Eric, and Julian for sharing your good. So my good listener, what's your favorite musical? And when this time is behind us and we can go back to the theater, what show are you going to rush out and see? We had tickets to Mean Girls last year on Broadway, and that's the top of our list for the hopefully near future. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to be an audience member again. 
next time on World Gone Good. It's a global effort, and it's got 30 filmmakers um, around the world from 22 countries. And it was started to have personal stories of people coping with the COVID pandemic, the struggles they have, myriad ways to endure it. But it was also then started to show ways that people have risen above it as as best they can. You may remember actress Dale Rowell from her Tiger Mom playing days as Maxine Fortenberry on HBO's True Blood. Or maybe it was Andrea Grinnell on Under the Dome, or any of the many, many other characters from Grey's Anatomy to The Office and everything in between that she's put her signature on. But did you know she's part of a group of artists sharing stories of survival, stories of healing, and stories of goodness in the collective worldwide filmmaking project Sana Tione? Well, you do now, and together we're going to find out all about it in our very next episode. We're also going to find out why Angela Lansbury never wore shoes on Murder, She Wrote. You don't want to miss any of it. Until then, be good.